Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. Community Voice, Missouri News, Blavity News, Ebony, The Root, The Griot, and News One. Today, I'll begin with Fighting Monkeypox. Sexual Health Clinics Are Underfunded and Ill-Equipped by Liz Zazabel, S-Z-A-B-O, and Lauren Weber. The Community Voice, July 19, 2022. Clinics that treat sexually transmitted diseases already struggling to contain an explosive increase in infections, such as syphilis and gonorrhea, now find themselves on the front lines in the nation's fight to control the rapidly growing monkeypox outbreak. After decades of underfunding and two and a half years into a pandemic that severely disrupted care, clinic staffers and public health officials say the clinics are ill-equipped for yet another epidemic. America does not have what it needs to adequately and totally fight monkeypox, said David Harvey, executive director of the National Coalition of STD Directors. We are already stretched to capacity. Monkeypox, a cousin of smallpox, is not technically considered a sexually transmitted infection but it spreads through close contact and is now being transmitted largely through networks of men who have sex with men. Because the current monkeypox outbreak causes blisters or pimples on the genitals, many patients are seeking care for what appears to be herpes, syphilis, or another sexually transmitted infection. Patients often prefer to seek care anonymously at public clinics rather than visit their primary care doctors because of the stigma of sexually transmitted infections. Although most people with monkeypox recover on their own in two to four weeks, about 10% need hospital care, said Dr. Peter Hotez, H-O-T-E-Z, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. The degree of complications from monkeypox has been much higher than any of us expected, said Dr. Mary Foote, an infectious diseases expert at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, who spoke on July 14th during a webinar presented by the Infectious Diseases Society of America. In addition to severe pain, some people with monkeypox are at risk of permanent scarring. Foote said the pain can be excruciating, making it difficult for patients to swallow, urinate, or have bowel movements. Sexual health clinics have been stretched so thin that many lack the staff to perform such basic duties as contacting and treating the partners of infected patients. These clinics are some of the most neglected safety nets of the nation's tattered public health system, which has less authority and flexibility to fight outbreaks today 
than before the COVID-19 pandemic. With 1,971 monkeypox cases reported since May in the United States and about 13,340 around the world, doctors warned the epidemic may have grown too large and diffuse for them to contain. Dr. Shira Heisler, H-E-I-S-L-E-R, Medical Director of the Detroit Public Health STD clinic, said she's proud of the quality of care she provides, but simply doesn't have time to see every patient who needs care. We just don't have the bodies, she said. It's a total infrastructure collapse. Funding from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention to prevent sexually transmitted infections has fallen by almost 10% since 2003 to $152.5 million this year, even though syphilis cases alone have more than quadrupled in that time. Taking inflation into account that funding has fallen 41% since 2003, according to an analysis by the National Coalition of STD Directors. Meanwhile, Hundreds of local and state health professionals who trace the origins, track the trajectory, and stop the spread of cases reported by sexual health clinics have quit or been replaced since the pandemic began. Some left due to burnout, and others were driven from their jobs by critics protesting unpopular policies on masks and lockdowns. Some federal grants to strengthen the public health workforce are just now being rolled out. Data reporting systems have not been updated during the pandemic in spite of glaring inadequacies it helped reveal. Public health workers still use fax machines to deal with monkeypox cases in Florida and Missouri, public health officials told KHN. Even With the advantages of having a test and a vaccine, we still haven't invested enough in the public health system in order for us to respond quickly enough, said Dr. Tao Kwan Get, T-A-O-K-W-A-N-G-E-T-T, Washington State's Chief Science Officer. Many people will tell you We have the best healthcare system in the world. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the monkeypox outbreak, shows that the system is broken and needs fixing. The White House is distributing hundreds of thousands of monkeypox vaccines, now releasing additional doses as they become available for a total of nearly 7 million doses within the next year. But, Hotez said, those vaccine shipments may not be sufficient. Some cities are running out of doses shortly after opening their doors. In New York City, where monkeypox cases have tripled in the past week, the vaccine rollout has been plagued by technical glitches. The vaccine website has crashed at least twice. San Francisco officials said their city is also running low on vaccine supply. 
monkeypox vaccines can effectively prevent infection in people before they're exposed to the virus. Experts believe vaccines may help prevent infection after exposure as well, but they're most effective if administered within four days after close contact with a monkeypox patient, said Dr. Trini Matthew, T-R-I-N-I, Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention and Control at Beaumont Hospital in Taylor, Michigan. Vaccines given between 4 and 14 days of exposure may reduce symptoms but not prevent the disease. Yet, the battered public health system isn't built for speed. Although monkeypox tests have become easier to access in recent days, some public health officials don't have enough staff to quickly locate and test patients' partners. And because most health professionals have never managed a case of monkeypox, patients often must make multiple visits before being accurately diagnosed. Contacting exposed people becomes more complicated if they live across the country or state line, which can require coordinating an outbreak response with additional health departments, said Sean Kiernan, K-I-E-R-N-A-N, Chief of the Communicable Disease Section for Virginia's Fairfax County Health Department. Decades of budget cuts have led many sexual health clinics to limit their hours of operation, making it harder for patients to receive care. Public health departments have lost key members of their teams in recent years, including highly trained nurses and outreach specialists. A 2020 KHN-AP analysis found that at least 38,000 state and local public health jobs have disappeared since the 2008 recession, leaving a tattered workforce to confront America's public health needs. And that was before COVID hit. That investigation found only 28% of local public health departments have statisticians or epidemiologists, the disease detectives, who investigate the source and trajectory of infectious outbreaks. More than 2.4 million sexually transmitted infections were reported in 2020, according to the CDC. I don't think any health department in America could handle all the STIs that get reported to them, Kiernan said. The federal government has spent billions of dollars fighting the COVID pandemic, and some COVID-related grants will be used to expand the overall public health workforce. But the CDC and Congress often designate funds for specific purposes, said Lori Trammell Freeman, head of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. If you have somebody working on COVID, you can't just reassign them to monkeypox using the same bucket of money. Freeman said. And in some cases, that money hasn't yet reached public health departments or sexual health clinics. The CDC gave Michigan 
millions of dollars to strengthen its public health workforce. But the Michigan legislature appropriated only a portion of the money. Heisler wrote to multiple state legislators begging them to free up the remaining funds. None replied to her. Public health workers say they hope monkeypox will be a wake-up call. I hope this drives home the need for more investing in public health infrastructure, said Quan Get, K-W-A-N-G-E-T-T, of the Washington State Health Department, because without that investment, this is just going to happen again and again. This article is titled, Fighting Monkeypox, Sexual Health Clinics Are Underfunded and Ill-Equipped, by Liz Sozabo and Lauren Weber, The Community Voice, July 19, 2022. The next article is titled, Five Black Victories to Remember This July, by Christopher Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Blavity News, July 19, 2022. Although February is Black History Month, every month of the year is notable for a variety of accomplishment from Black people. July in particular has seen several important Black firsts and Black victories that bear remembrance. Here are a few of the most notable achievements that have happened during this month. Vermont abolishes slavery, 1777. Though slavery in the United States endured across the American South until the Civil War, it gradually died out in the North, which was far from perfect, but served as a haven for free Black people. The abolition of slavery began in Vermont, which officially eliminated slavery on July 2, 1777, nearly a year after the Declaration of Independence marked the birth of the U.S. Vermont's elimination of slavery, which was a part of a larger political shift as the former British colony declared itself independent during the American Revolution. By the time Vermont became a state in 1791, it had set off a trend of slavery being abolished across northern states. Amistad Rebellion, 1839. On July 2, 1839, more than 50 enslaved Africans overpowered their captors aboard the Spanish slave ship Amistad, led by Sengbe Pie, S-E-N-G-B-E-P-I-E-H, also known as Joseph Sink, C-I-N-Q-U-E. The rebels demanded that the ship's crew sail away from Cuba, where the captives had been destined for lifetimes of slavery. Instead of returning to West Africa, the crew instead steered the ship to the United States, where the people aboard Amistad ended up in the center of a major court case over whether they should be returned to Cuba or allowed to go back to Africa. Eventually, Pierre and the other people aboard the ship won their case with the United States Supreme Court, gaining a rare win against slavery 
in the American judicial system. First, Tuskegee Airman Victory, 1943. World War II saw the debut of the 99th Pursuit Squadron, who trained at the Tuskegee Institute before protecting Allied planes in Europe. The Tuskegee Airmen became one of the United States military's most elite aerial units. On July 2, 1943, Lieutenant Charles B. Hall achieved the first aerial victory for the Tuskegee Airmen when he shot down a German fighter plane over Sicily, Italy, the first time a black man had achieved such a victory. Hall, who was given a Coca-Cola as a reward for his victory, went on to be one of the most successful fighter pilots during the war, shooting down four planes in total. Civil Rights Act signed into law, 1964. After years of activism during the civil rights movement, President John F. Kennedy proposed a Civil Rights Act in 1963 that would be the most significant advance for recognizing black rights since Reconstruction. Kennedy's bill was blocked by conservative opposition, but after JFK was assassinated, President Lyndon B. Johnson had the opportunity to push legislation in Kennedy's honor. Top civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. pushed the president to pass the act, and even skeptics like Malcolm X were interested in the debate. Malcolm and King met for the only time when they both watched the Senate debate over the legislation. In a great victory for the movement, the Civil Rights Act was passed by Congress and signed into law on July 2, 1964. Among many provisions, the act banned discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Gibson, Ash, and the Williams sisters win big at Wimbledon. For many sports fans, July is best known for Wimbledon, the most prestigious tournament in professional tennis. Held every summer at the All England Club in London, winning the tournament is generally held to be the greatest victory in professional tennis. In 1957, Althea Gibson became the first black player to win a singles title at Wimbledon. Arthur Ashe became the first black man to win the tournament in 1975. Their victories paved the way for the dominance of the sisters, Venus and Serena Williams, in the tournament during the 21st century. Since 2000, Serena has won the tournament seven times and Venus five times. The sisters have also won six double championships at the All England Club. These are just a few of the many times that black people achieved victory in a host of contexts in American history. As July continues, let's take a moment to remember the achievements of this month in years past. This article is titled, Five Black Victories to Remember This July, written by Christopher Rhodes, Blavity News, July 19th, 2022. The next article is titled, Members of Congress, 
arrested after protest for abortion rights in front of the Supreme Court by Jennifer Shutt, S-H-U-T-T, The Community Voice, Missouri News, July 19, 2022. More than a dozen members of Congress were arrested Tuesday alongside abortion rights activists after they sat down and blocked an intersection between the U.S. Capitol building and the Supreme Court to protest conservative justices' decision to overturn, to overturn Roe v. Wade. The act of civil disobedience came as backers of abortion rights urge more bold action from President Joe Biden to protect abortion access and Republican-led states ban on severely limit abortion services. The 17 members of the United States House of Representatives and abortion rights advocates began walking together from the steps of the Capitol toward the Supreme Court building around 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Fifteen minutes later, they sat down in an intersection in front of the fenced-off Supreme Court building as a U.S. Capitol Police officer warned they were involved in illegal demonstration activity and would be arrested if they didn't move. A few minutes later, as lawmakers and protesters chanted in support of abortion rights, in support of abortion rights, U.S. Capitol Police began leading them away to a shady, grassy area nearby where they would be charged with crowding, obstructing, or incommoding under District of Columbia law and told they needed to pay a $50 fine. 35 people were charged, including 17 members of Congress. Those arrested included Democratic Reps Alma Adams of North Carolina, Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, Corey Bush of Missouri, Rashida Tlaib, and Henry Levin of Michigan, Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. A signal to my daughters and granddaughters. Dean told State's Newsroom in a brief interview after being detained by police for about an hour that she joined the demonstration to provide civil disobedience to stand up against unjust laws. I wanted to send a signal to my daughters and granddaughters. I will stand up for their rights, she said. Dean said she expected Democrats will keep holding events and debating legislation that protects reproductive rights, including abortion access, though she wasn't sure if members would hold other demonstrations that could lead to arrest. You'll see us taking legislative action or talking to the media, doing everything we possibly can to say the stripping of rights of half of our citizens, putting us in a second-class position. That will not stand, Dean said. Bush told reporters, while detained by police, that she decided to attend the protest to continue the advocacy she's been part of for years. I co-organized and co-led an occupation of Senator Roy Blunt's office, and he talks about it. 
back years ago during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, because we saw this coming, Bush said, referring to the Republican senator from Missouri and the Supreme Court justice. We knew that if he was able to be confirmed and some other things took place, that this could happen. Bush said that as a member of Congress, now she has a voice and a power in a different way and wants to use that to defend reproductive rights, including access to safe abortions. I have to do everything I can to be able to raise this issue and to make sure people know we will not stop fighting, Bush said. And this is not just for us now. This is for our legacy. This is our children's children. Levin said, while detained, a band played upbeat music in the background that the U.S. Senate needs to eliminate the 60-vote legislative filibuster that stopped abortion bills from advancing. The filibuster is a vestige of Jim Crow, he said. Our founding fathers didn't want it. It's just a simple Senate rule that a majority of senators should get rid of. Just because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that abortion isn't a constitutional right doesn't mean that Congress can make it a statutory right, Levin said. The U.S. House voted last week to approve legislation that would once again make abortion legal nationwide and a bill that would ensure patients who need to travel out of state for abortion can do so without interference. Neither measure is expected to make it past the Senate's 60-vote legislative filibuster. The House is set to vote later this week on a bill that would ensure access to contraception amid concerns from activists that the Supreme Court may undo other cases, including the one that guarantees people the ability to decide how to use contraception. Associate Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in his opinion overturning the constitutional right to abortion that he believes the Supreme Court should revisit the contraception case as well as the case that legalized same-sex marriage and the case that barred the government from interfering in consensual adult private sexual relationships. This article is titled, Members of Congress Arrested After Protest for Abortion Rights in Front of the Supreme Court by Jennifer Shutt, Missouri News, The Community Voice, July 19, 2022. The next article is titled, Dion Saunders Commits to Donating Half of Salary for New for New Jackson State Football Facility, written by Noah A. McGee, The Root, July 19, 2022. While Primetime's name may suggest that he's all about himself, his actions show that he's all about the team. In an Instagram post, Deion Sanders, NFL Hall of Famer and head coach of the Jackson State University football team, committed to donating half of his salary to assist with the renovations being done at the team's football operations facility. Constance Schwartz Morini, M-O-R-I-N-I, 
the co-founder of SMAC Entertainment, a talent management company that represents Saunders, says in the video that the budget for the renovations has run out and insists that the difference could be made up if Saunders donated a quarter of his salary. In the video, which has now been watched more than 44,000 times, Saunders commits to donating more and says, I'll put half on it to get this done. If you don't believe me, check me. I will send you the receipts. When Saunders came on as head coach, he signed a deal worth $1.2 million over four years, giving him an average salary of $300,000. Primetime's commitment comes as no surprise, as he has called out in the past the lack of resources at HBCUs when it comes to athletics and education. The HBCU plans to have the new operations facility done by August 4th, the day before camp starts, and a month before the regular season starts, when they play Florida A&M on September 4th in Miami. The facility will include a new state-of-the-arts players' lounge, meeting areas, coaches' offices, and locker rooms, according to the Mississippi Clarion Ledger. During the 2021 season, the team had a strong year, finishing 11-2. But Saunders' biggest accomplishment may have come at the end of 2021, when the number one overall recruit in the 2022 class, Travis Hunter, decided to sign with Jackson State instead of Florida State. The Hall of Famers' alma mater, which got some fellow head coaches upset. This article is titled, Deion Saunders commits to donating half of his salary for new Jackson State football facility. Written by Noah A. McGee, July 19, 2022. The next article is titled, Growing Concerns Voiced Over Johnson County Schools Losing Appeal Amid Education Crisis. Written by Margaret Mellot, M-E-L-L-O-T-T, The Community Voice, July 18, 2022, Overland Park. In the years past, Kansas education has been a selling point for families moving to Johnson County. It has been a recruitment tool to encourage community growth and to pull in young professionals. Today, however, local leaders fear the collapse of their school system. Essentially, we're at the point where we're looking for a transformation of public education and public schools, said Senator Cindy Holscher, H-O-L-S-C-H-E-R, an Overland Park Democrat. This is the result of decades-long involvement by outside agencies, sometimes out of state, sometimes in state, working to basically undermine our educational institutions. Community members gathered earlier this month to discuss the status of Johnson County Schools during a panel discussion hosted by Freedom to Learn, a local public education advocacy group. Mediated by Holscher, the July 9th panel consisted of four speakers, 
Wayne Burke, B-U-R-K-E, former Spring Hill superintendent, Patty Carter, director of special education at Greenbush, a Southeast Kansas initiative with the focus of bringing equal educational opportunities to all, Ken Thomas, a former Blue Valley teacher, and Jeff Little, a past president of Kansas Council of Health System Pharmacy. As far as funding for our schools, you have teacher salaries, you have special ed, and you have transportation. You have different supplies. These different areas that have to be funded, Carter said. Essentially, the legislature is supposed to approve the money to go into those buckets. Now, here's the caveat. Special education has to be filled to the top. If it doesn't get filled to the top, if the legislature doesn't allow that funding, the money has to come from these other areas to fill that bucket. Across the country, public schools are seeing a decrease in qualified teachers, according to the U.S. Department of Education. The national teacher shortage has caused states, such as Kansas, to allow emergency substitute teacher licenses. Education isn't the only profession seeing a shortage, especially in Kansas. With decreasing enrollment numbers in pharmaceutical studies, healthcare professionals are also experiencing this shortage. When I'm trying to recruit pharmacists and they're looking at where to move their family to and where to start a life, the quality of schools is absolutely a factor, Thomas said. That is something that historically has played to our favor when recruiting people is the Kansas public schools. Thomas said a local healthcare leader recently told him about moving from California because of the special education programs in Kansas. He was telling me that when he was looking at positions, one of the things he did is he went to the schools, Thomas said. He has a child that receives special education services. And he said, that's one of the main reasons that he chose to come here. Dave Trabert, T-R-A-B-E-R-T, CEO of the Kansas Policy Institute, a nonprofit organization that lobbies for less public school funding, attended the meeting. Following the main discussion, Trabert challenged the panel asking about student achievement. This is a question I've asked state school board members and local school board members, and I've never gotten an answer, Trebert said. I hope anyone out there on the panel or the senator would have to have an answer. How many more years is it going to take to get all these kids in Kansas to at least grade level? Burke asked Trebert, a series of questions about Kansas students. Are they special education students? Do they have trauma? Are their parents divorced? Are they fighting with their girlfriend, boyfriend? You're throwing out this. Give me this perfect thing. What I'm saying is I'm dealing with imperfect people that change from year to year. You can have a kid that's doing really, really well, and all of a sudden their parents are divorced. And that kid that might have been in the 90th percentile, 95th percentile, all of a sudden goes down. 
I don't know if I have the resources to help to get that kid back. Trabert persisted in his line of questionings with panelists and audience members growing impatient. One audience member asked him, have you ever taught in a classroom before? No, I haven't, Trabert said. In a flurry of voices, he pushed forward. You don't have to teach. I do understand the data. I understand that many states are going forward while Kansas is going backwards. Ulsher said she believes those who can make the best decisions about Kansas public education are the teachers, administrators, and counselors who are actively involved in classrooms. The best ideas do not come from legislators who haven't been in a school building for 20 or 30 years, Osher said. The professionals out there working are the ones who know how to address these issues. This article is titled, Growing Concerns Voiced Over Johnson County Schools Losing Appeal Amid Education Crisis by Margaret Melot, The Community Voice, July 18, 2022. The next article is titled, Sydney McLaughlin Shattered Her Own Record in the 400 Meters Hurdles at the World Championships this past weekend. Written by Rashad Grove, G-R-O-V-E, Ebony, July 25, 2022. At just 22 years old, the legend of Sydney McLaughlin continues to grow. The two-time Olympic champion broke her own record in the 400-meter hurdles for the fourth time in 13 months, with a time of 50.68 at the World Championship, reports ESPN. She demolished her previous record by 0.73 seconds, a remarkable feat that was 33 years in the making. It's unreal, McLaughlin said in an interview after her historic race. I haven't had the chance to watch it, so I'll have to do that and go back and talk to my coach, said McLaughlin. But I think there's always something to improve on. I think we're pushing the boundaries of the sport, especially in our event. By the 150-meter mark, it was clear that McLaughlin was on a mission, and she left her competition trailing meters behind her. Femke Bol, F-E-M-K-E-B-O-L, of the Netherlands, who finished in second place, trailed McLaughlin by 1.59 seconds. American hurdler Delila Muhammad came third in 53.13 seconds, a time that would have won the world title easily just a few years ago. It was crazy, Bol said. She was so far in front at the end, I was almost doubting if I really had a good race. And then I saw the time and I thought, wow, that explains a lot. After her record-breaking performance, McLaughlin looked at the scoreboard and said, that's great, that's great. Then the mascot, Legend the Bigfoot, photobombed her with a sign that read, world records are my favorite food. Along with a gold medal, McLaughlin received a $100,000 check, the prize for breaking records at the Games, from the World Athletics President, Sebastian Coe. 
COE. McLaughlin explained that her practice routine prepared her for this extraordinary moment. It's just putting everything that you've done in practice into the race to the point where you're just letting your body do what it does, she said. My coach thinks there's a lot more to be done, she added. And at some point, we could do maybe the 100 hurdles. He says to really, he says to just really enjoy the 400 hurdles while I'm doing it. And then, if you want to expand, go from there. So the sky's the limit, for sure. This article is titled, Sydney McLaughlin Shattered Her Own Record in the 400-Meter Hurdles at the World Championships This Past Weekend by Rashad Grove, Ebony, July 25th, 2022. The next article is titled, why My Ancestors Might Not Have Been Slaves, written by Bilal Morris, News 1, July 14, 2022. Your first name is like the gateway to your future. It's how you build atop the foundation of your legacy your family created for you. Understanding your first name means diving into your wants and needs and desires as a person. Then, shaping whom you want the world to see. But your last name is the most interesting. It's like a gateway to your past, and history is filled with intriguing stories. It's connected to why you are who you are at this very moment. The last name can tell you a lot about your heritage and history, unless you're a Black American, because frankly, many of us don't know how we got them. My name is Bilal Morris and I am a Black American. I wouldn't change my name for the world. If I had time in this article to tell you the fascinating tale of Bilal, the man I was named after, this would turn into a book. So for time's sake, this piece will delve into my last name, the one I know very little about. Finding answers is like connecting dots. Since I am a Black American, and Morris was likely a name given to my ancestors, I began my dot connecting there. From family stories and a little bit of information I could get out of the generation before me, I came to realize my family lineage could be traced back to the Maryland Eastern Shore, a place that birthed Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, two of the most important black figures in American history. The Maryland Eastern Shore was also known for its communities of free blacks before the Civil War. More free blacks were living on the eastern shores of Maryland than in any other slave holding area in the country. According to the Washington Post, free blacks roamed Tabot County as early as 1788, more than 70 years before the start of the Civil War. They eventually built two churches and purchased property to form a pseudo town called the Hill Community in Easton. By 1800, in the neighboring county of Dorchester, more than a third of its black population was free. This was partly due to the region's Quakers, who had customs of freeing their slaves after a certain age. I had connected my first dot. If my family had once called the Maryland Eastern Shore their home, they could have been free people. But I needed more dots to connect. The surname Morris isn't a Dutch name. 
it's closer to English, Irish, Scottish, or Welsh. So I looked for families in the Maryland, Virginia area with the last name Morris, who owned big plantations of slaves during early America. And what I found blew my mind. I came across an article by professor and historian Victoria E. Bynum about a case study she did in 1977, researching her friend's family history. She wrote about a mulatto woman named Elizabeth Morris, who was born between 1670 and 1690 in Gloucester County, Virginia. Elizabeth was an indentured servant to Thomas Morris, or two of his sons, James and Thomas Jr. The boys owned 670 acres of land in Middlesex County, which they inherited from their father. By 1724, Virginia set its sights on stripping rights from people of color. Free or in bondage, all persons of color were forbidden to hold unsupervised meetings and had to abide by a curfew or risk court-ordered physical punishment. As slavery became more popular among Southern whites, rich and poor, free black slaves struggled to cultivate their freedom. For Elizabeth, this meant that her children and grandchildren would have to maneuver through a world that was defined by slavery. None of Elizabeth's children were slaves, but all of them worked through the cycle of servitude. Even though servants weren't considered slaves, they were still forbidden by law to marry, which meant Elizabeth's pregnancies violated the terms of her indenture contract, resulting in her children being born into servitude. In the early 1700s, Elizabeth had two children, a boy named James Morris and a girl named Winifred. During each of her pregnancies, the Middlesex County Court ordered its sheriff to administer 25 lashes to her bare back as punishment for having children out of wedlock. This terrible process continued as Elizabeth's daughter, Winnie, gave birth to her own daughter at 15 named Biddy. She would also receive lashes for her pregnancy. By 1742, Winnie had given birth to three sons, Francis, George, and James. Winnie's older brother had two children as well, Thomas born in 1843 and William born in 1845. Three generations of free blacks with the last name Morris, only 220 miles away from Maryland's strong communities of free blacks? This might have been a coincidence, but I saw it as another dot connected. In 1860, when Thomas Morris was 17 years old, he decided to run and never returned to his master's home. Thomas was sued by his master for deserting service and was ordered to appear in court in December. Thomas did not show up. Instead, he kept running. In January 1861, he was ordered to report for a second time but did not show. Thomas was nowhere to be found. His case was eventually dropped and Tom Morris's apprenticeship was revoked and annulled due to the lurking civil war which was destined to change the course of America forever. Could Tom Morris have been able to find his way to Maryland and live among the free blacks who resided there? Could he have been my great-granddad? There is no way to know for sure, 
but just the idea that my ancestors could have been fighting to stay free in a world that would have rather had them as slaves is incredible once you sit back and think about it. My ancestors might not have been slaves. This article is titled, Why My Ancestors Might Not Have Been Slaves, written by Bilal G. Morris, July 14, 2022. The next article is titled, A King of His Own, story by Rhonda Racha Penrice, July 2022, cover of Ebony. Martin Lawrence, the comedy king on his continued reign. The catchphrases, you so crazy, you go girl, talk to the hand, and what's up, are just a few of the 90s hit show Martin popularized. When the series debuted August 27, 1992 on Fox, no one, not even Martin Lawrence himself, predicted it would become one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. 30 years later, the show is still widely watched on BET, where it airs every weeknight, as well as on other networks and streamers. The Martin, the reunion special, hosted by comedian Affion Crockett, which debuted on BET on June 16th, is receiving mainstream love from venerable global publications such as The Washington Post, The Guardian, and Forbes, proving how universal the show's genius has been. Yet speaking with Ebony, the 57-year-old funny man admits to not realizing how classic the show was until recently. I think I'm just finding that out because we're still on the air, he marvels. We're still running after all these years. To achieve the level of success that he did before the age of 30, he reveals that he used Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy as his blueprint. As a kid, I just always gravitated towards comedy, explained Lawrence. I was always watching television, watching Richard Pryor, watching Eddie Murphy. I always wanted to act, and so I thought comedy, stand-up comedy, like they did, was the way to get into acting. Back in 1992, he was on fire. That March, he kicked off the widely successful Deaf Comedy Jam as its first host, and then in July, he co-starred with Murphy, one of his idols in Boomerang, a big screen classic. Not only was comedy the way, it also became the vehicle for Lawrence to tap into his own greatness. Although he had appeared on Star Search, a precursor to America's Got Talent and American Idol, as well as become a series regular on the short-lived What's Happening spinoff What's Happening Now, Lawrence feels his role as C in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, was very crucial to launching his Hollywood takeover. It was just one of the biggest opportunities for me, and I was so excited because I was doing this movie with Spike Lee, and I just couldn't believe it, he shares. Even more special, his big opportunity came co-signed with a comedy legend. Spike was actually in town to see the comedian Robin Harris, and he had a meeting with him at a hotel. I went with Robin to the meeting, reveals Lawrence. Spike was talking to Robin about the movie, and Robin said, Spike, you should take a look at Martin. He's kind of funny. Lee asked if the young king was performing that night, and Lawrence replied that he was. Spike said, I'll take a look, and the rest is history, reports the comedic actor. From there, he appeared on screen alongside the rap duo Kid and Play 
in Reginald Hudlin's hip hop house party films, as well as on his own successful HBO One Night Stand comedy special. Even with all the incredible things that happened to him in 1992, solidifying him as a star in his own right, working with Murphy on Boomerang was still a personal highlight. It was special to do because it was my first time getting to work with Eddie Murphy. Imagine me as a young comic, and this is my first big break to have an opportunity to work with somebody that I look up to. For me, it was a dream come true. But even more of Lawrence's dreams were coming true as his show, Martin, became an instant hit, regularly attracting over 11 million viewers. The show about Martin Payne, a DJ at a radio station, and his girlfriend, Gina Waters, a young black couple trying to navigate love while kicking it with their good friends, Tommy, Cole, and Pam, resonated instantly. Instinctively, Lawrence knew who his Gina was. Tisha Campbell was the first person that I went to cast for the show because I knew from working with her in House Party and everything that if I could get her, everything else would fall into place. And it did. Campbell's real-life best friend, Tachina Arnold, would play her character's bestie, Pam. Anthony Payne, too, whom the two women knew from the teen audition circuit back in the day, played Cole. Martin's dense friend, Thomas Mikhail Ford, who had TV and movie roles dating back to the late 1980s, rounded out the cast as Martin's other best mate, Tommy. Sadly, Ford passed away at age 52 in 2016. During the reunion show, the whole cast honors him, pointing to the spiritual guidance Ford gave them. For Lawrence, representing Black Brotherhood with Ford and Payne too was just fun. Their comedic timing was impeccable. The way we would break during scenes and laugh, cracking each other up and everything, we just had so much fun. It just resonated on screen. And that's the way we were off screen, he continued. Still, the show's success or failure was squarely on Lawrence's shoulders. He admits to there being lots of pressure, but he says it just drove him to work that much harder and become closer with the cast. In addition to add extra zest to the series, he played multiple characters on the show, which would become some of the most beloved to ever grace the screen. Shanene was one of my most favorite characters because she's so relatable, divulges the comedian. There's also a personal significance to her, he discloses. She's an extension of my sisters and my nieces, so I'm really close to her. But he also enjoys many of the other characters that he played on the show as well, like Jerome, the pimp. He's so funny, so cool. And one of the players shares Lawrence or Otis, the cranky old security guard. He's a strong man. He believes in what he believes in. And he fights for it, continues the funny man, while the martial artist, Dragonfly Jones, physical antiques, he adds, had viewers cut up in laughter. However, even with great ratings, it wasn't always smooth sailing. Creatively, I got pushback for a lot of things that I wanted to do, reveals Lawrence. A young black man being in that position, running his own show and everything, I got pushed back on a lot of things but I stood my ground on what I believed in, and for the most part, 
things went okay. He also never took his eye off the big picture. With the security of being a king of the small screen, Lawrence teamed up with Will Smith, who had a successful sitcom with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for the 1995 buddy cop film Bad Boys. Lawrence, who plays the straight-laced cop Marcus Burnett to Smith's Break All the Rules detective, Mike Lowry recalls their then atypical teaming as two black male leads in a studio action film being a bit risky. It was big, he says, of the move for us to come together and prove that we can deliver and we can pull people into the box office that two black stars, two sitcom stars, could make money at the box office was huge. It was also an important pivot for him personally and professionally. I didn't go to college, so I felt TV was my college years, explains Lawrence. I felt with movies I had graduated. It was just different. The first Bad Boys film grossed over $140 million worldwide. Its two sequels, Bad Boys 2, 2003, and Bad Boys for Life, 2020, have grossed over $273 million and $426 million, respectively, putting the franchise net total at over $840 million, with the last sequel grossing more than the first two combined. Nearly 30 years later, the public still rallies around the blockbuster leads, going after the bad guys with high-speed chases and all the dazzle that made the franchise sparkle. Lawrence dismisses speculation that the franchise's fourth installment would be canceled as a result of Smith's shocking slap of Chris Rock at the Oscars. We've got one more at least, he says. Looking back on it all, the funny man who just released his edition of the Creative Thinking Journal says, I am thankful for the opportunities I've gotten and what they have led me to. I have no regrets. They were all learning experiences. Moreover, he's also basking in the overflowing appreciation for his talent and contributions. He will soon receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he takes it back to his roots. I feel the flowers surrounding all this Martin reunion stuff. I feel the love. And that's a you-go boy that's been well-earned. This article is titled, A King of His Own cover of July's Ebony, Martin Lawrence, the comedy king on his continued reign, written by Rhonda Racha Penrice. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Onkwe. Thanks for joining me.